Saint Oscar Romero once said, peace is not the product of terror or fear. Peace is not the silence of cemeteries. Peace is the generous, tranquil contribution of all to the good of all. Peace is generosity. Welcome to the 55th episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want all of us to remember what we can do to bring peace into the lives of others. We can be generous with our time, our attention, and try in our own way to contribute to the good of those around us. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dimpna's Mentions. First up, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk about the importance of advocating for ourselves when we're seeking and receiving mental health services. One really important thing to remember, you are the expert on you. Your symptoms, your experience, your mental health, your needs, no one knows it better than you. Not a therapist, not a doctor, not an intake worker at a hospital. This is so important to remember and to keep in our minds as we encounter those helping professionals walking alongside us. I know this can be hard, and I myself have found it difficult to speak up when sitting with a helping professional because of the power dynamic present in the relationship. But when a helping professional frames our situation or suggests an intervention or tries to summarize what we've told them, we need to speak up if it isn't quite correct. We can say something like, that's almost what it's like, but let me try to help you understand a little bit better. This is super helpful for the helping professionals working with you because in mental health, the only tool we have to diagnose and work toward appropriate treatment is your report. And that's why it's so important to ensure that your therapist or doctor has a firm grasp on exactly what you're going through. Think of this quote from Dr. Paul Hydette, staff physician at the VA Medical Center in Houston. The ideal doctor-patient relationship is like a meeting of two experts. The doctor comes to the meeting with medical expertise. The patient is entering with contextual knowledge what these symptoms mean in the broader context of life and what kinds of therapies that broader context is going to support. Of course, we can't always do that for ourselves because of our depression, our anxiety, traumatic experiences from the past, or mood experiences making it difficult to do so. And this is where we have to find someone who we trust, who will advocate on our behalf, help us speak up when things aren't going quite the way they should, and really fight for us to ensure we get the services we need and the respect and compassion we deserve. So here's some quick practical tips uh, that can help us with this. It includes asking questions like, I'm sorry, I don't quite understand. Can you explain that again? Questions like, what is this test for? What lifestyle changes can I make that will help my health? Why do I need this treatment? Is this the best possible treatment? Is there anything better than the current treatment? And then after we have a visit with a healthcare professional, we should ask questions like, did we feel at ease asking questions? Did the doctor reply in a way that we could understand? Did we feel that he or she really listened to our concerns and our feedback? Did we feel respected? Did we feel rushed? These are all a great way to assess if the therapeutic relationship is on the right track. 
On to the next topic, there's some really startling mental health statistics continuing to come up among the LGBTQ community that I think we really need to talk about. According to NPR, 40% of young LGBTQ people have considered suicide in the last year. That rises to more than half for trans and non-binary youth. 68% said they'd experienced generalized anxiety disorder in the past two weeks at the time of the survey. 46% of LGBTQ youth said that they wanted counseling from a mental health professional but were unable to receive it in the past 12 months. The CEO of the Trevor Project stated in an interview with NPR that, quote, we saw that LGBTQ youth uh, who have an accepting adult in their lives were 40% less likely to attempt suicide, which is a huge impact from a public health perspective. I wanted to bring all of this up because I think it's hugely important for us to understand the mental health experiences of those around us. And the alarming stats for mental health uh, of those in the LGBT community should be more than enough to help us realize how important it is to share the love of Christ with those around us who may be a part of this community. We should never discount the power of a kind word, the power of a loving and compassionate ear to listen, and the power of being Christ to those around us and seeing Christ in those around us. Hopefully these statistics can spur us into action for our sisters and brothers in the LGBT community who need our help. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm here to introduce you to Saint Alfonso. in 1910 in Arpakara, India. Her mother died when she was quite young and she was raised by her maternal aunt who ended up being an abusive presence in her life. When she was just three years old, she was diagnosed with a serious case of eczema that would torment her for more than a year after her diagnosis. Shortly after starting school, Alfonso, whose birth name was actually Anna, received a vision from one of her favorite saints, St. Therese of Lisieux, and was told that she was going to become a saint. After this vision, she decided that she wanted to dedicate her life to Christ. Her foster mother, however, had other plans and attempted to entice her to get married. In response to these attempts, Alfonso fell into a pit of burning chaff and burned her feet so badly that the idea of marriage was shelved and she was permitted to join religious life. In 1931, she took her first vows as a religious sister and would enter the part of her life where she would face her greatest trials and yet find her greatest strength. She began Became gravely ill with multiple different ailments. She was reportedly completely cured in 1936 through the intercession of St. Kirikosi Elias Shavar. However, her traumatic experiences were far from over. The Vatican website provides the details of her life after this miraculous cure. Quote, painful illnesses followed each other, typhoid fever, double pneumonia, and the most serious of all, a dramatic nervous shock. The result of a fright on seeing a thief during the night on the 18th of October, 1940. Her state of psychic incapacity lasted for about a year, during which she was unable to read or write. In every situation, St. Alphonse always maintained a great reservation and charitable attitude toward the sisters, slightly undergoing her, silently undergoing her sufferings. In 1945, she had a violent outbreak of illness. A tumor which had spread throughout her organs transformed her final year of life into a continuous agony. Um, her liver problems caused violent convulsions and vomiting up to 40 times a day. 
I feel that the Lord has destined me to be an oblation, a sacrifice for suffering. This is Alfonso. I consider a day in which I have not suffered as a day lost to me. Wow. She died with a smile on her lips on July 28, 1946, and was beatified alongside the future saint to whom she owed her brief cure by St. John Paul II 40 years later, and she was canonized by Pope Benedict XVI in 2008. Hundreds of inexplicable cures have been attributed to her intercession over the years. How in the world did this woman who experienced so much trauma from abuse to debilitating health conditions to a traumatic experience at the hands of a thief in the night find the strength amidst all of this to say something like, I feel like the Lord has destined me to be an oblation, a sacrifice of suffering. I consider a day in which I have not suffered as a day lost to me. It all comes down to her view of the world, her view of her relationship with Christ and what life is all about. It all comes down to another quote from her that I'd like to share. When the grains of the wheat are crushed and ground, wheat flour is obtained. We bake it to form the host for the Holy Eucharist. Similarly, we too should be crushed in the mill of suffering and transformed to become like hosts. We can now ask for the intercession of St. Alphonsa uh, in our life where we may have experienced unspeakable trauma to ask our Lord to give us peace, consolation, and a heart like hers. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. O St. Alphonsa, you have been graciously chosen from our midst to be united with Jesus Christ, our Savior, in the misery of his passion, death, and resurrection. You have grown to the heights of holiness and have been crowned with heavenly glory. Help us in our trials and tribulations. O daughter of sufferings, obtain for us the grace to lead a holy life, following your example, in total submission to the will of God. Be with us, transforming all of our sorrows into a holy sacrifice in union with Christ crucified, in reparation to our sins, for the sanctification and salvation of the whole world. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. M gets us started. Is it true that 100% of the time that someone who experienced trauma in the past will overreact, be hypersensitive to it in the future? When trying to address a current sexual harassment issue at work, the higher-up suggested that because I've experienced sexual abuse in the past, I'm hypersensitive to this type of issue, and the current harassment I'm trying to address wasn't actually that bad. Oh, M, I'm so sorry to hear about your experience, but thank you for taking the time to send this in. Let's all start by praying for M and everyone being told that their experiences aren't valid because of a history of trauma, that they may see through that lie and receive the confidence and peace of Christ into their hearts this very day. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Let's get straight into your question. No, it is not 100% of the time that someone experiencing a trauma will also experience symptoms or hypersensitivity in the future. 
Everyone responds differently to experiences. It isn't surprising if someone does experience those things, of course, because trauma deeply impacts us and our brains have to find some way to sort it all out. But for whatever reason, two people who experience very similar trauma can end up having very different reactions in the wake of that trauma. Okay, now to the second part of your question, the part that really makes me upset. The higher-ups at your work are 100% wrong. Not only are they wrong that you are definitely more sensitive because of your past experience, but also, and even more important, it doesn't matter. If you've been harassed at work, your previous experience has absolutely nothing to do with the present situation. All acts of harassment at work are inexcusable and should never be tolerated full stop. Their response, it makes me sick in all honesty, and I want you to know that you've shown some really incredible strength to speak up and stand up for yourself in this current situation. I hope that you have friends or family members who can support you through this time, and I pray for justice after this situation you've experienced and for peace to come into your heart. Mary is up next. Is it wrong or sinful to avoid certain religious practices due to scrupulosity? I have struggled with scrupulosity since I was a child. There are certain things I don't engage in or struggle to engage in because of this, such as wearing a brown scapular, frequent confessions. How do I find a balance between participating in these practices while not falling into old damaging, damaging habits? Let's all join together in prayer for Mary, asking the other Mary to intercede on her behalf and to let the grace and peace of her son flow through her hands into Mary's heart. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. Let's get right to your question, Mary. No, it is not wrong or sinful to avoid certain religious practices because of your scrupulosity. There is no church command that one wear a brown scapular or that one engage in frequent confession. Really, the only mandate is that we go once per year. This is found in Canon 989 of the Code of Canon Law. However, of course, this needs to be understood within the context of paragraph 2042 of the Catechism that reminds us that we must be in a state of grace to receive the Eucharist at Mass. So be at peace and know that you, uh, there are there are no requirements for you to engage in spiritual practices that cause you mental or emotional difficulties. Finding the balance, as you mentioned, can be difficult. But I would say that we can be sure that Jesus would not be calling you to engage in any spiritual exercise that brings you suffering. Our spirituality should be quite the opposite, bringing us peace. However, we also have to balance this with the idea that scrupulosity is a form of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and there is a proper and evidence-based treatment for this kind of mental health experience, exposure and response prevention. And that means that we wouldn't avoid the things that kick off our scrupulosity, but rather engage in them and prevent ourselves from engaging in the behaviors that calm that anxiety and stress. Uh, things like, you know, we might pray a rosary to be able to calm our stress because we think that we uh, did something incorrectly, right? Something like that. We would avoid that, that compulsive behavior. The best bet would be to seek out a spiritual direction director, and a therapist to guide you through both aspects of this experience. Hang in there, all right? 
Mark wraps us up. I'm having trouble synthesizing two ideas that don't seem to fit, even though I think they're both right. One is the moral fact that our lives are not ultimately about us, that we are meant as Christians to put others first, especially and most obviously our spouse and our kids. The other is the idea of self-care. My therapist is always reminding me that I have my own needs, that they are valid, and I have to communicate them, etc. But I struggle with the fear that if I speak up, I'm just burdening someone else with my stuff when they don't Uh, when they already have their own burdens to deal with and that as a husband and father my responsibility is to put all my own stuff aside and only worry about others needs what do I do I know self-care isn't wrong and I'm no good to my family if I just let myself fall apart how do I take care of myself and also put others first at the same time Let's all join together in prayer for Mark and for all of us struggling to find the balance between laying our life down for others and taking the time to care for ourselves at the same time. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, O gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy toward us, and after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Thank you so much for sending this question in, Mark. I think a lot of us can relate to it. I experienced this quite a bit when dealing with grief and bereavement after our son died. I tried to stuff it all down and be happy uh, so I wouldn't be a burden, so my wife wouldn't feel like she needed to help me. But in reality, bottling up my feelings actually made everyone, including my wife, feel more distant from me because other people who care about us can tell when we aren't sharing everything. And even though we often try to do things to prevent ourselves from being a burden, in a certain sense, that's what those who care about us want. Not for us to be a burden per se, but for us to share everything going on for us so that they can feel like they're truly a valued part of the relationship. We have to fight this feeling of not wanting them to help us, this feeling that we're supposed to be the one helping them. We have to, to a certain extent, cast off this idea of, it's my job to put their needs first, this is how I'm going to become a saint, and instead work to accept a more balanced approach that we are all here for each other. We are all here to help each other get to heaven. And recognizing the need to get help, share our feelings with others, and be vulnerable and intimate with them in this way is a strength, not a weakness. And in fact, it's the very example that Christ himself left for us by allowing himself to be helpless and defenseless here on earth. So now that we know it's important to reach out for help and let those around us give us that help, a couple of quick ideas to get us started on how to do this since uh, we've kind of been trained not to, right? First, be sure to share your story. No one can read our minds and we have to let people know that we need support. The next is a hard one. It's to say yes when help is offered. We don't need to act tough when someone we love offers us help. The easiest step to take is just to say yes. Ask for quiet company. Sometimes we just need someone to sit with us, not fix anything. And asking for nothing more than their presence can change our whole frame of mind. And last, be honest with what you do and don't need. It's okay to let the people around you know what you need to feel better. In fact, it's a huge blessing to someone who wants to help you. A lot of times as family members and friends, we want to help, but we don't know what to do. And so the best way for us uh, as individuals to get that help we need is to try and tell people exactly what we think we need. It's empowering for everybody involved in the situation. 
All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.